0: This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 4th of April 2022 at home in Wicklow and it begins as a, a, a reflection I suppose on what the best approach to contentment is, the best pathway to a sort of a personal resolution or accommodation with life and existences um with reference to the self and the, the the this was brought about by a discussion i was having with my my cousin here at hashtag blessed and basically we were debating whether the better road is to to lean into the self and go deep and you know wallow and explore and excavate and understand and unpack and then resolve that way. Or if there is a much more concentrated uh, attempt to achieve the removal of self, a sort of a, a, a healthful eradication uh, or erasure of self to sort of anonymize oneself and give oneself over to life um, with a sort of a, a very positive um passivity and radical acceptance rather than a, a determination to try and control everything and to 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 drive one's sense of purpose from a an egotistical or egoistic point of view so that is really the beginning of the uh, the discussion in this week's episode but what really what I really end up focusing on is how... Regardless of the the, the, you know, the philosophical nature of that and how it fits into maybe you know psychology and wellness approaches, I I I, I conclude quickly that we are all fascinated by individuals um, in terms of the, the the stories we consume and the art we consume. Particularly, um, we love. We love seeing our humanity reflected at us through other individuals. Are seeing aberrations of humanity in the individual, and we like historical figures of exceptionalism, and we're drawn to um, deep studies of self um, as it exists in other characters. And so the 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 episode really goes into three. In my opinion, three great examples of examination of self uh, from the movies. Uh, two perhaps more obvious than others, um, but three great, great movies in their own right, and three movies that are narratively driven by, uh, or certainly, borne witness by the, the 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 self of the characters in question um so yeah so that's what's coming um some in-depth movie talk on the back of the starting point and i think it's uh i think it's good stuff it's particularly good stuff if you like movies and these movies um, you know cover quite a bit of quite a time span Um the first one goes back to the 70s and the most recent is just from a few years ago so start listening to find out what they are and I'll see you there real soon. Cheers. Not gonna change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear, and you're listening to the Clear Out. Welcome to it. How's it going? How's she cutting? As they like to say round these parts. How is she cutting? They're not talking about your axe or your chainsaw or your steak knife they're talking about life (laughs) they're talking about your existence how is your existence slicing through the chaos of life how is your existence cutting through the bs the big system (laughs) uh yeah there you go so uh here you are welcome Welcome to The Clear Out and if you haven't been here before, this is a podcast dedicated to explorations of wellness via many different things, but often pseudo psychology, philosophy, movies and personal storytelling, sometimes of a confessional nature and the attempt to draw connections, to lay down a matrix of connectable understandable workable life-solving resources or approaches or questions that can be wrestled with in a satisfactory way that's the basic thrust is that a mouthful i think it was i think it is and it will continue to be anyway so be it um so there you go that's uh that's where we're heading in a in a a broad sense um specifically i have some very specific areas to look into today inspired by my weekends movie watching i'm recording this on a monday morning very unusual time slot for me to be sitting down at the mic but i'm looking at a busy-ish week and some other things have dropped into my schedule so this is the time to strike the iron it's hot and i'm striking it uh i just put up some photos of my chickens (laughs) have you seen my chickens i put up a couple of photos on instagram there of the chickens from last week some early morning shots the chickens silhouetted against the 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 morning landscape not fully against the sky Uh, and in one of them the the rooster the notorious randy half mexican rooster who goes by the name of edwina uh in one of them edwina's body shape as he perches atop a fence post is beautifully echoed by the tops of the trees um beneath him in the background it's uh it's quite a nice quite a nice thing just naturally presented itself um yeah the chickens they're um they kinda of drive me mad. There's a they have a sort of a a coldness. I mean I've spoken about this before in an earlier podcast. That cold reptilian eye of birds. Um, I think actually quite brilliantly evoked. Not in <laughs> not in Hitchcock's The Birds, although very brilliantly and horrifically deployed there. But actually in Pixar's A Bug's Life, which um gosh that must be that must be 20 years old at this stage is it it was one of the the earlier not long after toy story efforts wasn't it um in any case um a bug's life there is a secret sequ- there are a couple of sequences in a bug's life that feature um in stark contrast to the majority of the bugs the the insects, the ladybirds, the ants, the praying mantis, um, the 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 caterpillar, all those characters, and and even the the baddies, the locusts, as led by um, a very sinister, uh, sinisterly voiced um, Kevin Spacey. All those characters in a bug's life are drawn for comic effect. They're Clearly, uh, cartoon characters, and there is lots of natural humor in the way they're depicted, um, cartoonish, and and it's a cartoon movie, of course. But there is a bird that features at two key moments in the story, and the bird, of course, is a predator of all these insects, and the bird is not drawn in a cartoonish way bird is drawn in a very naturalistic way, and the just the the mechanical compulsion um, or the mechanical staccato rhythm of the bird preying on insects is is actually used to quite terrifying effect in the story. There are there are a couple of scary or one scary locust who's like a a rabid dog um, in the Kevin Spacey camp. And that locust character is, you know, used to to you know to be scary and used to scary effect. But the bird, ironically, the, the one character in the whole story that's not depicted in a cartoonish way, is genuinely sort of chilling. Um, because there's no caricature, there's no exaggeration, and there's a sort of remorselessness and a, a pitilessness to the bird that and that's why I use the word mechanical, the um, yeah, the bird preying on the insects is uh, quite vicious. And that's what I identify in the chickens as well. The, uh, the three chickens here who I think are they, they're the accounting department, aren't they, for the podcast? The, the, the finance department, you know, the eggs. Eggs is the metaphor, isn't it? Eggs equals money. Um, but you watch those chickens live their lives and yeah, it's like they've got this mad radar for where they can strike and attack food whether it's bird seed that falls from the bird feeders in the plum tree or i have over their time here found little dead animals like a dead baby mouse you know no fur on that guy just um pre-fur but got by the chickens i found a song thrush a beautiful sorry a beautiful speckled thrush up near the hen coop the other day and that looked like the victim of a chicken attack and then yesterday we found a um, an ailing, it looked like a juvenile bullfinch, it had that lovely sort of peachy, pinky chest, so not the full flush of colour that you'd see in an adult male, but um, somewhat, you know, a, a somewhat muted version, not fully developed yet. And this guy was kind of trying to hide in a hole in the stone wall in the garden, and I reckon he'd been got by the chickens as well, and we tried to save him, um, but... He didn't. He didn't even make midnight last night. He was, he was gone. He was gone before bedtime. Um, so, my uh, my daughter had christened him. She'd christened him Calvin. Oh, I know why. Because I've mentioned a Calvin and Hobbes, the the, the Bill Waters and cartoon strip, and Calvin. He's he's a character. I always, I always felt. I always feel I can identify with. He's kind of a an agent of chaos. A wild child. Um, I don't think I was as megalomaniac, uh, megalo, megalomaniacal as Calvin was as a kid. Um, but I certainly recognized the hyperactivity and the vivid world of the imagination. But on the flip side, Calvin has this amazingly sincere relationship with nature. Um, and frequently he and his pet tiger Hobbs recline uh, under the, the shade of a tree or just are enjoying the great outdoors and I remember there was a strip there where a bird, an injured bird was rescued but but died and it was a very poignant moment in the, in the Calvin and Hobbes journey um, so in any case I mentioned that last night and I think that's why my daughter christened this now departed uh, bullfinch Calvin so Calvin the bullfinch is no more and just to add to this kind of Projected darkness onto the, uh, the chickens. <laughs> um, I referred, I referred in the last episode to the the busyness of Edwina the rooster at the moment and how he has been foisting himself upon his two female companions several times a day, it would seem. And so the two, the two female uh, chickens are, are white, they're little white bobble headed things. I think they're um are they polish yeah i think there's a polish connection and they're not silkies are they they're something else but they've got these little kind of bubble pom-pom heads and then the rooster is more conventionally rooster looking except almost entirely black with his uh is it a, is it a is it a coxcomb is that what it's called what's the 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 the, the, the kind of ripply um kind of gross bit that sits on top of the head you know what i'm talking about Um, that kind of ridged bit is that the comb? anyway there's that little flash of colour and then there's a a bit of a shiny dark green around the tail feathers fine kind of cool looking but I tell you when he gets on top of one of those chickens and he spreads his feathers like a black cloak over the the, uh, the subject of his attentions, or the object of his attentions, it's, it's vampiric in appearance. And, it, you know, it was my wife who pointed it out, and I was like, oh, it's kind of creepy. And it was then I just kind of got a, I got that kind of Nosferatu kind of flash, just the, the vampire's cloak wrapping around the victim. And it also brought to mind that brilliant, brilliant scene chilling scene from Neil Jordan's interview with a vampire, his adaptation of the Anne Rice novel, um from I guess the mid nineties, that must have been around ninety-four. And um probably one of Tom Cruise's first departures from his conventional hero mold uh to play quite a you know a camp a feat um you know vampire guiding um well, he was lestat wasn't he and he was guiding the young uh novice vampire the beautiful brad pitt was he louis um into the world of um, eternal life but there's a there's a yeah a haunting scene a, ha- a haunting sequence in the middle of that movie where the guys end up i think it's in paris would it be paris Were they international travellers? Because they're definitely in New Orleans at some point. In any case, they're in a theatre. And it's an audience of mortals watching. Um, And it's like a vampire theatre. And a woman walks up on stage. And she's naked. And from above, we just see this circle of vampires just descend on her at speed and she's completely enveloped as they sort of devour her um, underneath their cloaks and the effect is of course very animalistic and terrifying and it's just done so so well i mean there's a snake-like rat-like you know verminous multiple swarming kind of effect to it that's really unnerving um neil jordan yeah he's he can tap into something can't he anyway now there you go so that's just on the chickens that's just on the chickens the mention of interview with the vampire presents the opportunity to talk about one of the one of the actors i want to talk about today uh who's which is kirsten dunst kirsten dunst first came on my radar in interview with the vampire as the child vampire who was eternally young because that the the time at which she became a vampire the age at which she became a vampire was the age at which you know which she remained for the rest of her vampire life and so she was this child figure but a very a much much older person inside and used her childish appearance and childish guiles and apparent innocence to attract and seduce her victims uh even though she was an adult inside and couldn't really enjoy adult pleasures and so there was just a brilliant performance by this child actress um a great sort of knowingness and sophistication and layering of of the character and i just thought she was brilliant and I was and have been a fan um, ever since. She, to me, I was thinking about it before recording today, I was thinking she's... She's... And, it, it, you know, maybe in, in recent years, as she's shifted into more mature characters, um, it's less... She's using this natural thing she has much less. But she is a naturally luminous performer. And... She has never, I felt, she's never been a highly sexualized performer, which is probably a little bit unusual for an attractive young Hollywood actress. I she is, I think, very attractive, um, but she has always had this kind of inner light in her work. I feel there's just been, and there's a lightness, a lightness to her her acting and yeah she was the main actress in one of three movies i watched this weekend which i which i'm going to talk about um in in a little bit but let me just um do a little bit of preamble to set to set the sort of the broader topic of what i'm talking about so i was having a a chat with my my cousin here at hashtag blessed and we were just having one of those general um you know existentialist how do you cope with life you know and and how do you cope with what life throws at you kind of chats and discussing kind of buddhist concepts and other existentialist approaches and looking at western duality um, and you know discussing the the rights and wrongs of placing oneself at the the center of the frame and at the center of the story and, and like this is this is a theme that i have touched on several times before um if you've listened to the to the podcast you'll have heard me speaking about the the great benefits i believe of being able to let yourself go of letting yourself be an object rather than dwelling in the subjective, in a compulsively egotistical way. and I'm not, I'm not saying egotistical in a... I'm not loading that with any massive negative um, connotation there. But I have discussed this idea of if we can relax and deepen and trust ourselves and trust that we know ourselves, we, we can be a lot less anxious about... How we travel in the world and how we're perceived by the outer world and what our engagements are um, with others and with the world around us. And if we recognize ourselves f- more from a a witnessing point of view or a distance, a distanced perspective where we see we're just another entity, we're just another life form, another organism and try to lower the stakes and take a bit of heat out of the great I the great me the great I am the great I want the great I need to I should all those big capital I's all those first person um, understandings of existence uh, can often be unhelpful and can leave us in a sort of locked in a cell of self out of which we we struggle to escape and this was this was part of the discussion i was having with my cousin yesterday and we were just questioning the you know where the better path lies and you know leaning into more the the buddhist you know detachment sort of idea the removal of self not obsessing about you know good bad um that endless sort of dichotomizing that we're conditioned to do in the west where it's sort of a often a zero-sum game i'm either this or i'm that um rather than looking at the the multifaceted, multi-valenced you know multi-layered expression um and the multi-layered kind of experience of being human um and looking at that in a very accepting way in a way of sort of um very you know what, what i think of as very benign and consistent acceptance um which is, you know, which is a far cry from the general thrust of a lot of sort of pop psychology and pop wellness advice that prevails on a lot of social media platforms in the modern age, which pushes towards a hyper happiness and a hyper, you know, positivity um hyper success hyper optimization and a sort of a a relentless performative happiness and a relentless performative wellness um which i have argued before um well one i've I've made it very clear i don't like it i have great distaste for that that push in that direction um and i've argued that it, it sort of lends itself to a sort of unhealthy um fanaticism and unhealthy obsession and a sort of a, a misunderstanding of of kind of the, the the sovereignty of self um that i feel is very still often massively connected to and i mean i argued this the other week i think still massively connected to very conventionally um capitalist ideas of progress and capitalist ideas of success and arrival um and it's you know it it, it's 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 often about accumulation um of experiences it's often about um the, the 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 achieving the achievement of goals so very goal oriented um Which, to me, always takes us away from the present and being present. And so, you know, one of the things my cousin and I were discussing yesterday was the idea of the... leaning into the idea of the the abandonment of self and the real kind of giving away of self, the letting go of self. And as I put it to him, I was saying it's like, It's almost like you're willingly bringing in a disintegration of self, a disintegration of that matter, like dust in the wind, and you're just throwing it up into the universe and offering yourself into the great sort of universal life force and universal energy um, just to be a part of the matter of existence. And within that, there's an you know there's a an anonymization. You're rendering yourself anonymous. You're bringing yourself into a into a a non. I mean, and this is not said in a, a negative state, but you're bringing yourself into into nothingness, into a very non-specific state where you're focusing on just existence i exist the matter of me exists and that is perhaps you know that is that is a path that is a path to not being stuck in a place of angsty self-examination um you know which which arguably you know we can say uh we the great we of me i the podcast dara uh what i do on this show is often in that territory but i'd like to think it's coming from a place of of calmness of of non-ego i think um it's tricky i mean i'm trying to walk this line <laughs> but i mean the nature of you know someone who has you, you know weekly put out a podcast that is massively an exploration of self and then say you know it's not about the self there's a there is a contradiction there which i i accept and i haven't quite worked out how to articulate that contradiction in a a way that i feel happy with but in any case that's all preamble because what i was going to argue what i am arguing is that whatever about this idea this very as I say, this very kind of Buddhist, uh, Eastern way of thinking to say we can just remove the self from the picture, and through that achieve. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to use the word enlightenment, because that sounds very grandiose. But through that removal of self, we arrive in a place of. Of existential acceptance rather than existential torment, I suppose, um, and that to me sounds more attractive. But in spite of that being a very valid offer, a very valid suggestion, a very valid approach, um, and I, th- you know, as I say, I think something that is ultimately very desirable to allow us to just kind of sit in a in a in a different place with ourselves the fact remains that we are endlessly interested in self and we're endlessly interested in the depiction of of self we're endlessly interested in the depiction and representation of the individual and of what an individual does and what world revolves around an individual and how an individual reacts and responds and determines in that world in which they find themselves. And I was, I'm reflecting on this in terms of how many, how many stories and how, how much art Revolves around the individual, the individual character um, and even throughout history, you know how much history is like how, how much of the uh, I won't say history but rather the the recording of history and yeah like like though so within the great historical record throughout you know throughout the history of, of human existence as long as we've been we've had the capacity to document, um the 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 stories and accounts of great individuals have been have been legion and that's still a dynamic and still a a mode of human storytelling and a mode of human understanding and human representation that we're all drawn to and it's across the board it's across the arts particularly um but it's still something that we instinctively recognize and I guess in terms of historical figures it's often in a frame of exceptionalism because often it's you know history often tells the story of of singular figures and of of leaders or you know the 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 great villains if we take the narrative of of dictators and the 20th century dictators and i think if you reflect on the russia ukraine conflict at the moment um you know the 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 figures that we're going to talk about are probably going to be of course putin and um zevolensky i've got his name right haven't i the ukrainian president who you know, are both behaving in very singular ways um, you know, for better and worse but I'm going to focus today for the rest of the podcast I want to focus on three movies that I watched over the weekend my Friday, Saturday and Sunday night viewing uh, because I thought they're actually great illustrations of this idea of you know, self-centred movies like a movie that focuses on the individual and the individual's journey i mean not all movies do this um but many many do and i'm looking at two that are superficially connected and one that's quite different um but basically they all lean really heavily into the 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 you know the individual's journey and the individual's experience and they are three great performances by the actors involved um very evocative and intriguing and fascinating characterizations um with very different things going on in their lives and different different uh, different drivers if you will um so let me just get on with it then so the three movies i watched over the weekend were in order uh, on Friday night, uh, having not seen it for maybe 20 years or more, I, and I watched all of these on Netflix, incidentally. Um, so, you know, sometimes we, may, you know, we, can, we can feel like there's not a great range of stuff there to watch because um, they pop up the same you know, offering on your, your home screen all the time. But I watched Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver from 1976 on Friday night. Um, On Saturday night, I watched uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette from 2006. And last night, I watched the Safdie brothers' Good Time from 2017. And they are three absolutely distinctive movies. Um, One, at least, Taxi Driver, is, you know, an absolute... um, classic it's guaranteed its place in the canon of great great movies um you know just a, a phenomenal achievement um of scorsese bringing paul schrader's uh, script to life on screen um with a sort of a definitive young robert de niro performance um yeah, just a, a a haunting, chilling, visceral piece of work. Um that also you know, brought, brought us into, you know, with much greater you know, with, with a much sort of greater screen vision and screen much greater sort of screen accomplishment uh of Martin Scorsese's than his earlier mean streets which you know which which you know the 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 blueprint was there you know the blueprint was there the sort of the new york kind of underworld uh sort of fringe players of the underworld fringe players of the kind of of the crime world um but you know that those italian american uh guys coming up guys on the make um, ducking and diving, bobbing and weaving, all that kind of stuff. Um, where in Main Streets, Harvey Keitel was really the the, the focus uh, of that story, and De Niro was the kind of the out of control wild boy, and um, the kind of the secondary character. Um, and then that flipped, and De Niro became the guy. De Niro became Scorsese's guy, and. It's his it's his world that we're brought into in Taxi Driver and it's you know one watching it now you might be struck just by how youthful De Niro looks um I mean I think at that stage he was he's playing I think 26 or 27 in the movie he might have been in his his early 30s at that stage um but he was really quite a like a small guy like a small wiry guy and he looks you know at times he just looks really good he looks like that classic good-looking um screen idol and then he can just flip uh we see this other side that is kind of unnerving it's kind of gawky and a bit gormless and goofy um and later of course very 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 chilling in terms of what plays out but but basically just to give you a recap of what Taxi Driver is about um, if you haven't seen it um, it's the story of um, a war veteran named Travis Bickle played by De Niro and he is you know now we'd kind of go okay he's he's got you know he's got ptsd and he is sort of desensitized to to you know to life he has uh, insomnia he can't sleep and he is really if it hadn't already been in his makeup he you know is demonstrating a sort of a sociopathic leaning uh, you know a failing to to recognize um boundaries a failing to recognize uh, normal human interactions interactions or to put them into a frame um that we would understand you know relating to what is and isn't appropriate um and you know someone who is really listening to his own track and stuck on his own click track in his head and you know, in a way that keeps him just sort of out of the loop and out of the, out of the conversation, out of the natural flow of interaction with others. But basically the movie starts and he gets a job as a taxi driver because he can't sleep at night. So he wants to do, you know, work long hours and get through the nights. And the story really of the movie is his, um, his kind of unraveling, I suppose, and his sort of disintegration or his descent into um sort of fatal action um brought brought about by his own desperation his own you know inability to to achieve a sense of control over the world in which he finds himself and in this particular movie, and you know, it's it, it, you know, it, it, it's 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 becoming you know, it, it's a cliche. Um, it, it can be a cliche of movie criticism, but it's very evident here. You're looking at, um, a pre-gentrified New York, and like I would certainly remember that as a kid. Like depictions of New York, and two movies come to mind, which I've mentioned before on the podcast, um, The Warriors and Fort Apache, the Bronx, both sort of early 80s um, movies set in New York and presenting New York as a sort of urban hellscape of, you know, drug addicts and prostitution and social decay, moral degradation, um, entrenched sort of cynicism, evident fear and danger and electricity New York as a sort of a horrorscape, and you know, you know, in in the Warriors that's presented, you know, that's kind of hyped up because it's, we were brought into the world of you know of street gangs, with you know different colors and masks and costumes and whatnot, but very much that was very much how kind of New York I guess, on one level was in the you know late seventies or the seventies and early eighties, um and it felt gritty it felt scary it felt real and taxi driver is very much in that place as well um you know it's 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 the nightlife particularly that de nero's character travis bickle experiences in his taxi and there's an you know there's an edginess there's a messiness um and it's it feeds into his sense of alienation and his sense of disgust and disdain and his sense of wrongness like the, the sense of this you know this is a messed up world but then what we see in his daytime activity is he is drawn to um, a campaigner for a presidential candidate a beautiful um, campaigner in white, uh, a young Sybil Shepherd, and he sees her and he approaches her, and he is he is persuasive and charming because he's he's kind of speaking a language, um, that's coming from, you know, coming from his place of being misunderstood and, um, his his place of not being able to identify or relate. And he speaks to her and sort of goes, I, I can see you're lonely. I, I recognise something in you. Um, and she's taking it at face value and is kind of seduced by it. And then on their first date, their first proper date, like they, they go for to have a coffee first, but then he takes her out and brings her to, um, you know, an adult cinema to, to watch, um, uh, you know, a pornographic movie. And, he he he's completely bemused when she walks out after you know within minutes of the the opening of the movie and he doesn't understand why she's offended or uncomfortable and it's kind of it's a bit of a breaking point for his character um and it really is the final sort of the final thing the the you know the, the straw that breaks the camel's back the tipping point and he determines to to take action and the the other female focus uh, of his attention in the movie is jodie foster as a child prostitute who is under the the care of harvey Keitel's um you know virile slippery and uh, kind of dancing pimp who um it's just this kind of extraordinary street creation who is mocking De Niro's character when he's first approached by De Niro, but ultimately De Niro sets about on a mission to to liberate the you know to liberate Jodie Foster's character, and it, it all comes to sort of a, a bloody conclusion. And in the mix of all of this, or in, the, in the, you know in the backdrop is the story of the the, the presidential candidate candidate's campaign, and. You know, that journey of, um, you know, a public representative trying to get elected and trying to speak for the people or to convince the people that he is the right man for the job and, you know, tra- De Niro's character tapping into, you know, like, what is this journey? What is this journey of, of salvation? What is this journey of, of, of rescuing the country? Um, is this guy the great white hope? and de Niro's character ultimately sets himself on a what really what what he what he's trying to he he wants it to be a sort of a a suicide mission of destruction of this this street life that he has such uh disgust for um and yeah it's just it's just a, a brilliantly told story um and it's atmospheric. It's creepy. De Niro's performance—possibly I mean, one of his best acting performances—really, because um, he it kind of keeps it in a very real place. It's not as broad as his as his Jake LaMotta, um, and that that vocal cadence that De Niro has, which can be quite um, quite kind of quite dead and quite lacking emotion. I mean I spoke about this in his his character in The Deer Hunter um when I was arguing he doesn't make a great um a great lover in the movies um because he, you know, he's almost too remote and too detached and too internal but it he uses it to such brilliant effect in Taxi Driver and he is a chilling fascinating slightly terrifying character who in a way watching it now um you know whatever it is 45 years um 45 46 years later um is it's amazing how resonant the story feels at the that sense of you know of, of nihilism and the sense of disenchantment and alienation and the sense of you know, the whole world is going to hell. So I've got nothing to lose. I think that's a very that's a very resonant um, feeling, and it's a very resonant kind of depiction um, of an experience and of a perspective in in 2022. Um, and so really, in many ways, like Travis Bickle, that character as written by Paul Schrader, who's a great <laughs> Paul Schrader, throughout his career as a, a writer and a director, this is he comes back to again and again and again, the the the, the, the individual male actor, um, you know, the, the, the male agent who is struggling with his internal conflict who is struggling with his pain, who is struggling with his his inability to make sense of it all and his inability to adjust or adapt or assimilate. Um, And throughout Taxi Driver, we have De Niro's voiceover from his character's diaries. And he famously refers to himself as God's lonely man. And that is... Really, it, it's, a, it's a Schrader archetype at this stage. Um, and it's one he's returned to again and again. Most recently in last year's The Card Counter, with a brilliant performance by Oscar Isaac as a, again, like the De Niro character, a war veteran um, who is struggling, really, to come to terms with his, his shame and his guilt and ultimately the card counter, though set in the world of of um you know, small town casinos, it's the story of atonement and an attempt at redemption. Um and it features a couple of nice performances from Tiffany Haddish and Ty Sheridan as well. Uh and also um Willem Defoe in a very in a very key in a very key role. Um so Schrader, yeah, very much set the template with Taxi Driver all those years ago and is still writing scripts, you know, that are very much centred on, um yeah, on God's lonely men. Let's use his own language. So that was Taxi Driver. And so, and yeah, as I say, an amazing evocation of the tormented self. And in fact, that nightmarish evocation of torment and... Psychopathological descent and unraveling—that explosion of psychopathic violence—that um, is the really the um, the climax of, of the movie was so visceral and disturbing that the the legendary film critic uh, Pauline Kael almost yelped in in horror uh, as she watched. Pauline Kael really was a key film critical voice um who with her review of Bonnie and Clyde um announced the you know announced with great authority the arrival of the new hollywood post sort of post easy rider i suppose easy rider is considered the movie that really started that creative revolution that broke the studio system and ushered in this american um like a, an american echo of the the french nouvelle vague the french new wave and pauline kale was one of the key voices and that review of Bonnie and Clyde was a seminal text in sort of understanding the new hollywood aesthetic the new hollywood voice the auteur uh, imprint on new hollywood movies of the of the 70s and taxi driver was very much in that vein and her reviews are key texts for anyone who's interested in in movies of that time. And I will I'll include I'll include in the uh, the description to this episode her original review of Taxi Driver. I I, I, f- I was looking for it online and found it on a nice website that gives a little a nice little preamble and kind of sets the scene for the review. And it it it, it brought to my attention um, again that. Pauline kale didn't have a great relationship with Paul Schrader so she she barely gives him credit for for taxi driver um, really focusing her praise more on Scar- on Scorsese's achievement rather than what Schrader achieved and what he created with that script so um, well worth a look if you're enjoying listening to this go and go and click on that link in the description and um, check out. Pauline kale's uh, response um, from the time. It's, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. So, the next thing. The following night, I went to Sofia Coppola's 2006 movie, Marie Antoinette, and Kirsten Dunst plays the titular character. And I... I don't know why I didn't watch it at the time. I I mean, I'm not a diehard Sophia Coppola fan, but the the couple of movies of hers I've seen, I've liked. Um, The Virgin Suicides was her debut, which I loved. Kirsten Dunst was in that as well. Um, Of course, she did Lost in Translation, the the Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson um, drama, romantic drama, life. You know, such a, yeah, I I really liked that movie. Um, It was a real kind of moment, it felt, um, at the time. But um, I haven't seen, I hadn't seen much else of Sophia Coppola's, um, but this one, Marie Antoinette, is, yeah, just a, a, a visual feast. And before I talk about Kirsten Dunst's performance, the, just the sense of, of composition, Sophia Coppola's sense of composition, um, her sense of, uh, you know, mise en scène, the the arrangement of the the, the images on the screen, and um, where she kind of puts the camera and how she arranges things, it's it's painterly. I mean, there are just some moments in that movie that just go, oh my, you know, just the the way the light has been captured, and I, I didn't stop to 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 look up the cinematographer but they obviously deserve massive massive credit as well um in fact i'll just i'm going to quickly give them a reference because it feels wrong not to um but yeah color and light um and just the the aesthetic the aesthetic delight of that movie is it's just something to be immersed in, absolutely beautiful to look at, and the the cinematography was by Lance Accord. Hmm, never heard of him actually, but there you go. So Lance Accord definitely has a lot to be thanked for, and KK Barrett was the production design, uh, production designer for that movie. But really, just. you know just absolute immersion in in beauty and loveliness um and they they were they they were allowed to shoot in the palace of versailles and they do it to to great effect and what's also then you know what, what what i think you know, what Sophia Coppola brings to that because, you know, we can think about historical dramas and we can think about, you know, period dramas and often they can be a bit staid and a bit stuffy and a bit dry and humorless and stiff and that's just not her bag. And she brought that, you know, she brought a similar quality to The Virgin Suicides, her adaptation of the Jeffrey Eugenides novel um, when she, you know, made her mark. But there is... Something um, certainly in the movies. In the movies of hers, I've seen, she is great at evoking a sense of of atmosphere and and texture and bringing us into the sort of the interiority of her characters. And it's something about the way she uses sound as well they seem to me to be very um, hourly, calm kind of movies. Now, that said, she also likes to use music and she brings in what what are often commonly referred to now as needle drops, where she takes pop songs, contemporary pop songs or known pop songs, punk songs, and drops them into the soundtrack. And so she does that sort of incongruously in Marie Antoinette to to great effect because ultimately I think her position if you know based on the movie is to remind us that Marie Antoinette was this Austrian princess who was betrothed to I think it's Louis the 16th hilariously played by um, Jason Schwartzman in in Marie Antoinette as this kind of Dufusy, callow, idiot um, of uh, of a French prince, who yeah doesn't really. <laughs> he's just so ill equipped, to to um, to be a a husband, so ill equipped to perform his husbandly duties, particularly in the attempt to sire um, an heir to the throne, um, and yeah what we're what we're reminded of is yeah Marie Antoinette was I think she was 14 when she was married in this attempt to to broker uh, a strong political relationship between Austria and France and I think what Sophia Coppola is doing is, is bringing us into that world of you know a young woman a teenager who has been has come up through the aristocracy understands her her obligations her duties what she's expected to do but is massively massively in touch with her adolescent um fascinations and obsessions and whims and caprices uh and just beautifully 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 played by kirsten dunst in In this kind of souffle of a of a performance that this I think this is her kind of great gift it's not in any way empty because that's her quality as an actress um is that she is i think very believable and there's a an intelligence sort of simmering not not necessarily she doesn't necessarily place it in a very intellectual heady. I'm smarter than everyone like her just her emotional intelligence and her ability to to bring the sort of the the you know the internal pulse of the character that person that their their personality very much is very much present at all times um and yet her journey through the movie is one of okay, well, my young husband um is not really doing his duty um in bed and we're failing to to make a baby well i'm going to get on with enjoying the the riches of my role and i'm going to enjoy the parties and the public occasions and i'm not going to be held back and kirsten dunst and sophia coppola i guess conspire to go she isn't presented as being, um you know malicious or you know um you know selfish in a petty insecure or egomaniacal way it's more she you know she, she seems to be you know their decision was to go she came into this with um you know with with no with no guile she came in with a sort of an openness to the experience and a kind of a great appreciation and a great willingness to enjoy the, you know, the, the benefits that came with the the place she found herself, and you know, ultimately, it, it you know, it is. It's like a it's like a teen movie at times when she has her besties around her and they're buying beautiful beautiful shoes and eating beautiful cakes. And you know, as I say, you should check out this movie just to. To enjoy the visuals, um, even if you don't find the story particularly compelling, but I think it works. It worked for me, and it's there's it's fun, it's frothy, it's witty, and it's still it taps into something. I think it taps into something believable and relatable, and we do experience it. We do experience it through, again, this this vivid self. That is Marie Antoinette as presented by Kirsten Dunst, and the world in which she finds herself, um, and you know some, with some great, with some great sort of uh, supporting roles. Marion Faithful as her dedicated mother back in Austria. Danny Houston as her brother drops in momentarily. Um, probably most memorably, uh, Judy Davis, the great Australian actress um has a, a wonderful role as the sort of almost mentor figure within the, the French court who is instructing the young Marie Antoinette about the, the do's and don'ts and all the decorums and etiquettes that must be observed. Uh, Judy Davison is kind of her, her character is kind of excruciatingly kind of awkward and pained at all times to ensure everything is being done the correct way. Um, Rose Byrne, another Australian actress, incidentally, she drops in about midway through, and there's a great injection of energy and fun and frivolity and silliness um, with her. That I think her character gives gives Marie Antoinette permission to just go for it. Um, yeah, it's done really well. Oh, and ripped torn. <laughs> Horn, is very funny as the king's father this sort of lascivious um you know lascivious drooling scoundrel um who has his his courtesan his mistress in court um to the disgust of everybody else um yeah he's very good also um and steve coogan the the the, the english comedian actor Uh, he's very good in it really solid but i think the funniest thing about him in the movie is his extraordinarily hideous haircut um at one point uh we 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 see him without his without his wig or his hat and oh yeah it's something to behold he's like a, a butchered poodle but really fantastic and well worth a watch um and yeah i think very very sort of you know, you get that sense at the end. It, it takes it, it. The movie travels to its its natural end point, which is the collapse of the monarchy, the collapse of the aristocracy in France. The storming of the Bastille is reported, and um Marie Antoinette, you know, again in in the in terms of the story, you know, kind of heroically stays by her man in their palace and the kids while the mob gathers outside, and the the closing scenes. I I thought we were going to end with the the guillotine but in a way I was relieved that that wasn't Sophia Coppola's choice although we're left in no doubt as to where it's going to end but it's it's quite a quite a judicious um melancholy ending um and yeah just really nice and it was funny I I was, I was thinking about it this morning if you're talking about you know the young the young performer Playing this distinctive historical figure, it, it it made me jump back in time to uh, Tom Hulse in Milosh Foreman's um, Amadeus, uh, his Oscar-winning uh, biopic of Mozart from nineteen eighty four, and I remember seeing that as a kid and thinking, you know, wow, you know, what an amazing, an amazingly electric uh, performance by the young Tom Hulse Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't watched that in a long time and I'm not sure how well the Tom Hulse performance has aged. Mostly what I remember from it now is his high-pitched laugh as the young genius composer. Um, Probably F. Murray Abraham as the embittered lesser composer um, who's languishing in Mozart's shadow, Salieri. His is probably the more memorable part um, and his kind of... Bitterness and delight at at um, Mozart's ignominious end um but I'd have to rewatch it. I'd have to rewatch it. I think um is it Don Giovanni that's uh used to great dramatic effect in that movie um but yeah it, it, I, I you know maybe they're maybe there are good companion pieces um you know lives in the kind of the European courts. And two great youthful performances, but as I say, I'm, I'm putting a little asterisk beside Tom Hulse's performance. I'd have to go back; I'm not sure how well it has aged. Incidentally, the English actor Simon Callow, he he portrayed um, he portrayed Mozart in the stage the stage production of of that script because I think it was a oh, I'm going to go blank the the playwright's name wasn't it the same playwright who did Equus is it Peter Schaeffer did he do the the play of Mozart of Amadeus for the stage and Simon Callow played him on stage and he does appear in Amadeus the movie as well as um, I I can't remember what the role was one of the courtiers or maybe another musical figure I can't remember anyway blah 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 okay so the third movie I watched very interesting Um, Good Time from um, just five years ago 2017 and directed by the safty brothers uh benny and josh safty and they directed a few years ago um what i think is just one of the best movies of recent years uncut gems uh which focuses on adam sandler as this jewel dealer who gets himself in a horrendous situation um in the in the, in, an, in an extraordinarily tense um, you know sweaty performance which is excruciating to go on on the journey with him because he's his own worst enemy uh, you know an embodiment of of aggressive chutzpah and you know a neck and just you know compulsive, can't stop taking the wrong risk um because he's 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 he's, he's, a, he's a gambler and uncut gems is just a, a nerve-wracking ride um on the, on the end of on the end of your kind of you know your 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 vicarious kind of wits as you, you go on the journey with adam sandler who is just getting away with it, getting away with it, getting away with it. You've got to watch that movie, Uncut Gems, which I think is still on Netflix as well. But this was an earlier movie by the Safty brothers um, from a couple of years before that, called Good Time, and like Taxi Driver, set in New York, like Taxi Driver, the sort of New York um, underworld, or um, if not underworld, that that, that that probably overstates it, but you know the the fringes the fringes of of society the the kind of yeah the the the, you know, the disenfranchised the shut out the left behind um and what's kind of really what i really like about what the safety brothers do is they don't they're not really wasting any time <laughs> they're not wasting any time kind of going let me bring you into the world of these guys they just go for it right from the start and the central figure is played by robert pattinson who who came to the world's attention really in the Twilight movies as the mopey vampire um, Edward. Was he, is he Edward? I mean, I remember watching that movie on a plane, the first Twilight movie, going, oh, yes, Grant, whatever. Um, and then it just became this massive franchise phenomenon. And I think the actor, Robert Pattinson, who's, who's English, was just in, you know, he was probably the number one heartthrob for teenage girls all around the world. Um, and I can't remember the 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 other male heartthrob who was in it, who, who he was a werewolf in the in the in the movie series. Is it Taylor Taylor something? Um, but of course, um, Kristen Stewart, not Kirsten Dunst, but Kristen Stewart was the was Bella the, the. The human who falls in love with Edward the Vampire in the Twilight movies. And yeah, like he just he was a type that kind of the Byronic the Byronic mopey <laughs> The mopey languid lover with you know alabaster skin because vampires don't go out to get a suntan for obvious reasons. And subsequent to the Twilight movies, I think Robert Pattinson has actively Gone out of his way to seek out um, edgier, non-conventional, fringe kind of characters who are definitely not in the romantic mold. And Good Time is very much the embodiment of of that decision. Um, And basically, he is a he is a a criminal, and he the the movie is fundamentally about a, a a bank heist. Uh, bank robbery that uh, ends up going pear-shaped and his partner in crime is his intellectually disabled brother played beautifully by one of the the, the, the co-directors um benny safty and it's right from the off just from and, and, the, and the movie opens with a scene uh where the brother is in a consultation with a um you know a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist um some sort of uh you know psychological health worker um and he's in a consultation in a in in an, in an interview and right from the off i think benny safty are just brought brought into that character immediately i think it's a brilliant brilliant performance and such a contrast to his performance in paul thomas anderson's licorice licorice licorice, licorice? Lic- Am I wrong to say licorice? I mean, I I can't get anyone to verify this. (laughs) I look it up and I'm told, licorice. Licorice. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza from last year. Great, great, great movie, as you would expect from Paul Thomas Anderson. He just doesn't miss. And Benny Safdie is in that movie as... And I mean, this will draw a connective line to Taxi Driver as well. He's in that movie as a young, progressive, attractive politician and he couldn't be further from the the, the, the character that he plays in Good Time who um, can, can can barely sort of articulate himself. Um, but yeah, that movie, I mean, I'd almost recommend the movie just to watch his performance I and mean, he features most, much less, he has much less screen time than Robert Pattinson. Uh, but the movie is driven, really, by Robert Pattinson's attempt to to basically um, get his brother out of custody, out of jail or subsequently hospital, where he ends up um, and his attempt to kind of, you know, to liberate him. And it's, again, similar to Uncut Gems, just this sort of, you know, breakneck tale of, Uh, Robert Pattinson just trying to make the right moves his character he is a player he's a hustler he's a con man Uh, incidentally his character's name is Connie Um, maybe that's coincidence maybe not he's a charmer but he's got aggression he's got edge and what's kind of beautiful and I think what's lovely about the movie is there's also a very evident um, vulnerability and Love and humanity i mean he's he's driven by this love for his brother, even if you know how he chooses to try and be the protector or the problem solver is is coming from that kind of criminal mindset the um you know it's kind of got like a desperate hours sort of vibe it's like you know you know my only choices are the wrong choices um but they're the best choices I've got. And yeah, it's yeah, it, it, it and it is. It's great. It's 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 a great performance and it, it what what I think is really interesting about what the Safties do is unlike Taxi Driver where Scorsese is really giving us those beautiful, you know, nighttime visions. Uh, I'm talking you know, about a cinematic from a cinematic point of view, um like New York wasn't a thing of beauty to look at. I mean that was the point. But what Scorsese evokes with the kind of the, the neon, the neon landscape and the neon streetscapes, and the kind of the, the edgy, you know, hustling characters of Taxi Driver's nightscape, including, you know, famously or infamously, Scorsese's own uh, appearance in Taxi Driver as a, a sort of a psychotic um, husband who's been cheated on. Um, a kind of a suited up maybe wall street kind of character who gets robert de niro to drive him to where his wife is having an affair and they're he's looking up at her through um she, he sees her her shadow in the window uh, he talks about what he's going to do to her with his gun and where he's going to place it and it's yeah it's kind of okay martin um i guess that's what you want to show us uh but you know again it's a it's a great it's a great character um and maybe another, another kind of, you know, a, a, another pebble in De Niro's shoe, so to speak, in terms of going, this city is screwed. But in any case, whereas Scorsese was trying to show us, have a look at the streets, have a look at the lights, have a look at the action, see the people, the is taking a very different approach because their, their frame is often very small, their frame is claustrophobic it's about it's about kind of choices running out it's about no options and it's about being squeezed and it's like they squeeze the screen so we get a lot of close ups a close ups of eyes and faces and confined spaces and um, you know inside you know a, a, a tiny a tiny sort of cheap house or apartment inside corridors um uh, you know, inside alleyways, um, in inside, a, inside a, a, a minibus and everything's kind of, you know, the walls are closing in, the ceiling is closing in, the rooms are cluttered, the screen is cluttered, the world is cluttered, there are no clean pathways, there are no clean avenues um, and Pattinson's character, Connie, is just, you know, relentlessly pursuing you know the options he thinks he has and he you know he leans on a a girlfriend played vividly and kind of tragically and funnily by jennifer jason lee um but then later he finds himself um prevailing upon the kindness of strangers with whom he's shared a minibus with his with, with, with who he thinks is his brother um and he ends up sort of you know impulsively and desperately seducing the teenage daughter so she can't see his criminal face being paraded across the TV news station um, so he's just like he's just electrically alive to the moment and the immediacy of the situation and the immediacy of his choices and the movie is driven by that um, to its you know to uh, the, the Safety brothers don't seem to trade in happy endings um, so you know it ends and I, I it ends with with Robert Pattinson's character in custody, and I found myself wondering if he was if he was trying to channel Bob Hoskins's final scene in the Long Good Friday, so memorably Bob Hoskins played the the doomed um kind of hubristic gangster is it harold shand or howard harold it's harold isn't it harold shand in the long good friday the one of the great british gangster movies and in the end he's taken down by the ira um pierce brosnan features in 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 that in an early role um before he got his i think before he got his teeth done (laughs) but anyway the ending of long good friday is extraordinary um an extraordinary bit of sort of you know face acting where hoskins is you know they've got him and he's been taken away in the back of a car and the camera just stays on him as he's just pugnaciously defiantly desperately glowering at the guys who've got him glowering at life furious and helpless um and it's kind of compelling uh compelling and chilling because you, you know as those credits roll, you know you're watching a dead man. And similarly, at the end of Good Time, um Pattinson's in the back of a squad car, and we're just looking at his eyes through the the grill of uh, of the of the car behind the the front seats, and yeah, you just see him processing the new reality, processing the new immediacy, and you know there's glints of humor you know of knowing kind of yeah of course how you know was it ever going to end any other way you know um this this is my lot and you know it it's i think again it's it it's a great individual performance and it's a great evocation of of self and a guy who is just going for it and and in a, in a radically in a radically different way. In a radically different way to De Niro's Travis Bickle, um, you know, in Patterson's character. He's got he's got interpersonal skills. You know, he's quite charming and there's a warmth to him and he has moments ever so brief of, of you know of poise and courtesy, even though you know he's just pushing this agenda and he's desperate and he'll do whatever it bloody takes to get his to get his brother to get his brother back with him um and the yeah i mean again and just to underscore underscore the safety's sort of uh sympathy or um empathy their their humanistic um kind of driver the, the, the film doesn't end with Robert Pattinson. I mean, I think that that's the second last scene with Pattinson looking through the grill. It actually ends with the brother, back in, um, back in care, back with the 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 psychiatric uh, person or the psychologist from the start of the movie, and he's you know he's brought into a into a class into a session with other. Um, what other residents clients patients with intellectual disabilities with a very and it's a very it's actually a very warm ending there's a sadness because Benny Safdie somehow you know brilliantly conveys the the sadness of the character and he's uh, there's a certain kind of brokenheartedness there um and it's just lovely actually it's just lovely so it's um yeah they're it's a movie i i wouldn't hesitate to recommend those those three movies an, an interesting trio taxi driver marie antoinette and good time uh, and they're all there on netflix so um there you go i'm, I'm this is <laughs> my big plug for netflix uh well worth checking out and it's just it's just to remind us that no matter what we can say philosophically uh, existentially psychologically about the primacy about whether the primacy of self are trying to base our our wellness frame on self whether that's worthwhile or not um, personally i think it's a it's a kind of a two-tiered approach i think you know you can there's great benefits to be had from doing the work on yourself in terms of if you've got trauma to unpack if you've got stuff you still haven't worked through successfully, if you're aware of certain patterns that aren't helping you, um, I think do the work. Do the work to get help, to seek help, to get yourself to a, a happier place with yourself. And it's it's then when it can be easier to, to let yourself go, to not be so focused on the great I. And you can be released to engage with life in... A very different way um where you can be much greater uh empowered, I would say by not being anchored to to working yourself out um and this is you know this I don't think this is necessarily has to be a youthful concern, I think there's always always a place for learning. There's always a place for understanding ourselves better. There's always a place for changing patterns and walking into a better space in our lives. I don't think that ends. I don't think it has to end. Um, I hope it doesn't end. Uh, and I think that is very connected to being present um, and being alive to, to who we are and where we, where we are and who we're with and what we're doing and making that decision to to get on with it and to to engage um with with life to the the fullness of our ability and to make active decisions even if that's um the active decision to detach or remove or to power down they're all good choices too at the right time they are great choices so i'm going to power down now i've got a i've got a tai chi class to teach and i'll be back i'll be back next week so i hope you enjoyed this episode very very movie focused story focused character focused but um there are three characters yeah i don't think you'll regret spending time with um steal yourself though if you're going to watch taxi driver it's a bit of a rough ride Okay, you can throw me some love on social media. A couple of people have recently, and I am grateful. Thank you. Thank you for that love on social media. The Clear Out podcast is on Instagram. It's on YouTube. It's on Facebook. The Clear Out 2, that's the digit 2, number 2, um, is on Twitter. And you can email me, should you care to, at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. And if you want to support the podcast financially, throw a few euros my way you can do so uh, using the supporter link wherever you're listening to the podcast or you can become a regular uh, patron of the show using patreon.com forward slash the clear out and just throw me the price of a cup of coffee uh, once a month or once every couple of weeks and that would be wonderful otherwise spread the word bump it on pass it on to someone you think might enjoy it and i'll be back i'll be back next week with more okay thank you so much for listening i do appreciate it you take care of yourselves out there watch out for the uh watch out for the individuals and don't forget you're an individual too okay mind yourself take care bye